My wife asked me to explain her appearance today. She's got a big cast on her left arm. And uh, um, I, don't want it, I don't want anybody to think that I provoked her. Uh, because that would have been her right arm, not her left arm. She got some surgery done this last week. Um, she wanted to wait until she had a chance to preach on Sunday morning. She was here last Sunday. By the way, was she good? Okay. And I, and I appreciate all the compliments, except the person who said, could we have her preach every week? All right. Well, she got that done this week. She had some hand surgery. She got a thumb joint uh, replacement, and uh, she's going to be, you know, ready to go. She has to go back and teach on Tuesday, and she'll do that with one arm, and, and she'll do great. So anyway, my son and his wife are here, and uh, this is their last time before they move, move away, far away to Austin, Texas, where our older daughter happens to live. They're going to live about 10 minutes apart. This is amazing. That's two out of our three kids have moved to Austin, Texas. Our daughter loves Texas, loves Austin. Her comment is, there's only one bad thing about Austin. It's surrounded by Texas. <laughs> but Austin is a great place and a fun place, and we're going to be visiting there as often as possible. So Brandon and Hisela. Love you very much. Glad that you're here today. We took our last bike ride yesterday, Brandon and me. I'm looking for a lot of sympathy today. <laughs> this is hard, having your firstborn, your only son, move far away. We're looking at um, the book of Ephesians. We're starting a new series today. I want to tell you something about the city of Ephesus. It was a very significant city, a very significant place in all the Roman Empire. It was uh, actually the number two city. There was Rome, of course, um, the, uh, the capital of the empire, the far-flung empire. And then there was Ephesus, which was the capital, the provincial capital for Asia. Anything across the, the straits from Greece is considered Asia, modern-day Turkey. Um, it was a city of perhaps 500,000 people, which is very large for an ancient city. It was a crossroads, kind of the gateway to the east. As, uh, as Romans and Roman business would go east, uh, the other city would be Alexandria in Africa. That would be the third great city in the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus. He stayed there two years. He made a very significant investment in that place. He was in the synagogues. He was in the pagan temples. He was reasoning on behalf of the gospel. And he won many converts. And a church was planted there. And then churches out into the countryside from Ephesus. And so now as we read this letter, we're reading the letter of a man who is in prison in, uh, in Rome, caring for the churches that are doing well or not so well as the case may be. He writes a lot of letters. We have a number of them in the New Testament. And he wants to reassure them again of the basis of the foundation of what it is they believe. So not only for them, but for us in the next few weeks. And of course, anytime we want to open our New Testaments and want to look at this particular, uh, this particular letter, there's great value here for us. And I think great value for a church that's in transition, as GRX is, marking our 10th anniversary today and yet in a bit of transition. The founding pastor who was here nine plus years 
Dave Che, a good friend of mine, uh, started this church, put very, uh, I think, solid DNA into our identity as a church. Many of you have been around for a number of years, perhaps in some, of, in some cases all 10 years. And now we're in a, a transition. We're looking for new leadership. We have a nominating committee that is going to look for the next pastor. We have uh, changes uh, happening in terms of the way we do ministry. And yet there is still a founding vision that we believe still launches God's great experiment called the church. The church is um, the greatest invention and in many ways the most difficult, most problematic, most pain-filled experience that anybody could ever have. Why is that? Because it's like your family. And your family is the happiest place on earth when it is. And when it's not, it's very, very hard. It's very difficult because the stakes are so high. Because we care so much. Because these people, these relationships mean so much to us. So what is that foundation? What is it we can learn from Paul's letter, Paul's thoughts, Paul's inspired words to the Ephesians? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 if you have a Bible or you can look at it up on the screen as I read it for us. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me make a, a grammatical comment. That's, one, that's two sentences so far. That's what you would expect. There are two verses, two sentences. The rest of this passage I'm going to read is one long run-on sentence. From verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. Paul is virtually breathless. In fact, I tried to read this with one breath. I, I, I couldn't do it. So, even though we put a couple of periods or semicolons in the English just to make it readable, understand this is one long sentence thought upon thought, tumbling over each other. Paul's trying to describe the indescribable it's so powerful. What he's saying is, um, is very gripping. So I want you to, to hear this as one long extended thought. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the, his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory, and that you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let me get, catch my breath here, just, just for a moment. <clears throat> wow. 
we begin in this letter not with a lot of instruction as to how we're supposed to conduct our lives. Not with a lot of commands. Not with a lot of ethical mandates. Um, He'll get to that. How we are supposed to live, what we are empowered to do as followers of Christ, he's going to share that. But he begins as he always does, please catch this, with our, with your privilege. He begins by describing the gift. The gift you can take no credit for. The gift gift you don't have to work hard to earn or deserve. It is a gift given to you from the heart of God. It is a gift you are supposed to revel in. Do you know how to revel? And by the way, the title of our message this morning, you thought I misspelled the word? Revelation with two L's. I made up a word. Yes, this is revelation. God is revealing Himself and His heart to us, but He is calling us in response to revel in the gift, to revel in the goodness of God. We've been singing about it. Sometimes I think we sing about it in a rather mechanical, rather lifeless, rather emotionless way. But we are called to revel. If we're not gripped here, all the things we are called to do, the description of our mission the mission of a church that's 10 years old, the mission that you have personally, um, the, uh, the challenges and uh, the, the, the difficulties that, that we face and the, the things that we are called to do that are too hard for us, we'll never get to that. We'll never find the, the courage to get to that unless we learn to revel in the gift of God's love. Just... Imagine it, if you will. You've heard the words. Paul is trying to describe what it is that God has done for us. It begins in verse 3, this long sentence. And we could just you know, take a long time and unpack this sentence. But it begins with a description of the fact that we have been given every blessing. Every blessing is ours. Well, how much is Every. How much blessing do you need? Are you missing something? Are you living without something? The the promise is, is that God in Christ has given us every blessing. Meaning what? Well, there's a whole lot of words. There's about 12 of them. I'm going to pick four of them that kind of loom above the rest. He has given us redemption. Now, redemption is a word that has kind of a religious ring to it. So what does redemption mean? When you redeem something, you pay for it. You you pay a ransom and you bring that thing or that person out of slavery. There's a rescue operation going on here. Did you read about the, the cruise ship that went aground in the in the uh, on the coast off of uh, off of Italy? You know, like a Titanic type story. And uh, this cruise ship, the uh, it's called the Floating Temple of Fun. And in the middle of the night, or late at night, when all the shows are going on, everybody's having a great time, and they're eating dinner, and they're, they're in the theater, all of a sudden, it, it runs aground, the captain or somebody's not paying attention, and uh, begins to list badly to the right, and the people start jumping off the boat as it starts tipping over, and the rescue boats are not even able to get into the water because of the angle 
and a rescue operation is underway. And it was, uh, it was a very difficult rescue operation, very difficult, very traumatic for people. There was chaos, there was panic. We need rescuing, sometimes from forces out there, sometimes from threats out there. Things suddenly happen, suddenly happen to you that you didn't expect, that you can't predict, and as it turns out, you don't have the capacity to take care of whatever the problem is. And you cry out for someone to rescue. You think you're on the floating temple of fun. Everything seems so routine. Everything seems under your control. And all of a sudden, you get the news. All of a sudden, something happens. Somebody crosses your path and, uh, uh, in a way that is, that, is, that is harmful or threatening to you. In Christ, God has launched this grand rescue operation. And everything that's a threat out there whether it's forces of evil, whether it is enemies that are threatening to overpower you, whether it is bad news that undoes you, God says, trust me, I will take care of that. That's why I've sent my son to effect this rescue operation. Forgiveness is yours. That's the problems I bring on myself. That's the threat I am to myself and that you are to yourself. That's also part of this good news that we are to revel in. All these threats have now been disarmed. I don't need to be afraid anymore. I can trust him. And anything I have done to myself or ever will do, there is this grand remedy called forgiveness that will release me from the guilt because Christ has taken my place. And then there's this thing called grace, a word we use a lot. And again, we need to plunge deeply down into because it's an amazing gift. This grace means I'm accepted. It's as simple as that. I'm accepted right where I am as I am. I'm accepted. Are you kidding? We hardly know about such things in our world. Nobody accepts me right where I am. I have to prove myself. I have to impress somebody. I have to kind of compensate for my deficiencies, don't I? I have to work my way into somebody's good graces. No, God's grace provided for us in Christ means that I am accepted right where I am as I am. I'm not only accepted as in tolerated, that's not really acceptance, I'm embraced, I'm claimed. I'm his, as Paul says here, his possession. You're, you're his possession. Wow. And I have his peace. Are, are, are you? This all kind of adds up. It's all cumulative. And all of this leads to what Paul is going to call praise. The praise of His glorious grace. It, 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 all, it, it, leads, it gets our attention in a way that causes us to just sort of wonder at this. Can it be true? It's too good to be true. But if it is true, it changes everything. The rescue operation, which is absolutely effective in Christ, doing what I cannot do for myself. The forgiveness, releasing me from sins I've committed. And if I'm honest, there's a lot of that that needs to be done. The grace, the acceptance, the embrace I get from God because of Christ, it's, it's His great big embrace of me. And the peace, the protection that I, I'm safe. And I'm walking out of here and I'm safe. I don't know what's going to happen, but He's, hold me, he's holding me safely in His arms. Does that really work? Can you believe this? Is this foundational for you and your faith? Does it stimulate you? Does it inspire you to revel in it as in, oh God, are you this good? Is your love this great? And to just stand amazed 
at this good news. I mean, this is everything we're looking for, everything we're longing for, everything we're afraid we're going to miss, and it's laid out in front of us as this great gift. And this isn't some program about how you get there and how you make an impression upon God and how you earn His favor. No, it's a gift He gives. He decides to do this before you even thought about Him or doing anything for Him or with Him. This is a gift. And your, the command here is to revel in this. Or to use a more biblical term, rejoice in this. Let it be the source of your endless joy. Just continuously reflect on this and take it in. 1995, March of 95, I went with World Vision into Bosnia. If you're old enough to remember, there was a war going on. The war was still hot in certain places in Bosnia. Crossing over from Croatia into Bosnia, going through a militia checkpoint. Didn't know which militia it was, whose side they were on, hoping this, these were the good guys. A team with World Vision, you would hope they would know what they were doing because they're World Vision and they're all over the world. And we were going to check on their work behind uh, the front. And we got to a place where we had to go over the mountain because we couldn't get into Sarajevo because the war was still hot there. And so they diverted us and said, no, you're going over the mountain. And so we, we went up into the mountain, and there's all these other traffic that's going on, and all the way from uh, ox carts to big buses and trucks. And we came to a, an absolute standstill because some truck had, uh, had crashed and crossed the road, and the whole thing was blocked. There's a guy over here who's got a machine gun, and he, I think he's drunk, and he's firing it off in all kinds of directions. Makes me a little nervous for some reason. I don't know if you've ever been around with a, a drunk guy with a machine gun. It's just a little unnerving. <laughs> there happened to be a UN tank parked over here. I went over there. There was a Canadian blue helmet guy. I walked up to him. Amazingly, he spoke fairly decent English, even though he's from Canada. <laughs> I said, do you see this guy over here? He goes, of course, I see him. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm a UN observer, so I observe. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah, this is my notebook. I write down observations. This wasn't reassuring me very much. And then he kind of smiled and he said, now, if you want protection, what you do is you stand behind me, because if, if he shoots at me, I'm allowed to shoot back at him. We finally got over the mountain. We had to put on a flak jacket at one point because they said there were snipers in the hills. Didn't know all this when I signed up for this trip, by the way. <laughs> we get down to a village. This village has been absolutely decimated. Maybe uh, 15,000 people had once lived there. And the Serbs and the Croats and the Bosnian, the Bosnian Muslims had lived together in harmony for many years, but then they had turned against each other. And you could see the, uh, the shells and the bullet marks pockmarking the, uh, the buildings. And uh, there weren't many men around. They were either off at war, they were wounded, they were drunk themselves. And there are all these heroic women who were trying to you know, step up to the challenge, even though there were still many, many threats. Many of them had been in uh, concentration camps where unspeakable things had happened to them. So we sat down with these Muslim women. And I'm a little nervous because um, I'm, I'm kind of their worst nightmare in many ways. They've been attacked by Serbian Christians, quote-unquote, and I'm a Christian. Uh, men have done terrible things to them. I'm, I'm a man. 
And I'm an American, and America hasn't stepped in yet. This was before America did step in, so we were not doing very much. But they accepted us, accepted me, sitting down at a table with all of these women. There's a beautiful woman sitting about three seats away from me. Beautiful young blonde woman, a mom. And she was talking, and uh, I'm sort of taking in everybody. And it was 20 minutes later that I realized that the right side of her face had been blown off as she turned my direction. Hard to look at. Much harder to live with. The woman sitting across from me is a psychiatrist, a Western-trained psychiatrist. And finally I said, what happened here? And I was looking for a psychoanalytic explanation, some kind of psychological interpretation of what happened that turned people against each other and, and all of this viciousness and violence and, and it was still you know, unsettled. And I said, what happened here? And expecting again a kind of rational argument, and I couldn't imagine a rational argument that could explain all this. Ira she said, the devil got into us beyond any scientific explanation. Hard to imagine that level of, of evil. Finally, I had an audience with the a conversation with the imam, the local Bosnian Muslim leader. And so we had a conversation and I said, how is this town ever going to heal? All of this that has gone wrong, all of this pain, all of this hurt, recovery from, from, um, from loss and, and devastation, it's even hard to describe. I said, how is that going to happen? He said, well, and I said, according to your beliefs, how is it going to happen? He said, uh, well, forgiveness. I said, really, now I've, I've read the Quran and I've had discussions about that and I'm not real familiar with much about forgiveness in the Quran. He said, well, there are two theories. We have two theories. The one theory is that forgiveness can happen. You can finally release your anger when you have drained the last drop of blood from the last living relative of your enemy. Then you can forgive. Wow. I'd kind of heard that part. I said, what's the second theory? Well, the second theory is you take the hate out of your heart and you give it to God and you release it and you give up on all designs of revenge and you give it to God and you return to a condition of peace. I said, wow, really? Where do you read that in the Quran? And he folded his arms and he kind of smiled and he said, well, we stole it from you. I said, what do you mean? He said, the prophet Isa, Jesus, taught us about forgiveness. And I thought to myself, you know, the good news is better than I thought it was. Here's the Muslim priest evangelizing me, reminding me of where the real good news is, because there is no other theory. There is no other basis. There is no other foundation. It's what God has done in Christ. And rumors of that are all over the world. And when you talk about the worst of the worst that's happening around the world, all the political solutions, sometimes they make a difference slightly. The Arab Spring, there's an improvement slightly. But then we now have the difficulty of actually making this work. 
And is it going to be worse later than it was? Is the cure going to be worse than the disease? We don't know that as we look at country after country, Tunisia, Egypt, Syria. We don't, we don't quite know. We hope and pray. But ultimately, who is going to bring the grace and the peace, the safety and the protection, the forgiveness? Who's going to bring it? What other alternative do we have? And notice that, in fact, 10 times in 10 verses out of the 14 I just read, it says, in Him, in Christ. We know what the content is because our heart longs for these things. I long for grace and peace and forgiveness and rescue. I long for those things. We all long for those things. It's built into the human heart. And we live in such a deficit in our world. We think we're on the floating temple of fun. And then it crashes into a hidden reef. Because somebody wasn't paying attention. Sometimes that was, that's me. I'm not paying attention. We know what we're looking for, what we're longing for, but where do we find it? We find it in Christ. You can go all around the world. You can look at all other possible solutions and consider other theories, and they're all inadequate. They all break down because God in Christ has spoken decisively. And He offers what we need. Nancy and I have a friend who runs uh, a great ministry up in Sonoma County. It's a ministry to people in the New Age movement, many of whom were once in the church and have now left it because of its judgmentalism or for whatever reason, they've left. And they've gone off searching for something else, something more congenial, something more uh, believable, whatever, because of a bad experience they had in many cases. And this journey center in Santa Rosa reaches out to New Age people. Now, most of us, when you hear the word New Age, you, you kind of want to walk away because, you know, there's a lot of problems with that and it's, it's not Christian and it doesn't use Christian language. They had a talk last night. We really wanted to go, but we had too much going on. Had to watch football. <laughs> and don't get me started on, that, on those games yesterday. Wow. But there was, there's a woman starting another journey center in L.A., same ministry, same calling, and she's written a book called Jesus and the Secret. You know the book, The Secret? Anybody heard of that book? Okay. And the immediate reaction would be, well, that's not a Christian book. And from one angle, of course, it goes in a very different direction. But again, the longings expressed in the book and the experience of so many people who are New Age people who are in reaction to Christianity as they know it. The longings are longings that I respect. It's the same longings that I have. The longings for grace and peace and forgiveness and rescue. And in this book, this woman who is a believer and a follower of Jesus is explaining to New Age people why their search ultimately is about a rediscovery of Jesus. That... Their language around faith isn't so much leading to the discovery of some formula, some secret, some principle. It's leading ultimately to a person. A person who has proven that he is absolutely trustworthy. Who doesn't just promise but comes through. Who doesn't just um, announce uh, good intentions but actually fulfills it to the point of death and goes through death for us. I wasn't 
of course, at the lecture last night, but I, but I read online the synopsis of her book, and I thought it was a phenomenally sensitive approach to people who are looking for an answer that validates their search. Why is it we can't do that? Let's validate the search that people are on, and let's gently then guide them to consider at least the answer that we know from our own experience, if you do, that means you're reveling in the good news. And because you're reveling in the good news saying, God is this good, and I have to share this with you. I just have to share this with you. And you can decide whether or not you want this, but this is a person. This is a reality. It's not a principle. It's not a fantasy. It's not a wish. It's a reality. And what God has done in Christ is He has chosen, different words are using, used, predestined, adopted, lavished His grace upon. That's what God has done. God has made a choice. And that choice is for a very special purpose. He's not just arbitrarily choosing people. No, He has a purpose in mind. He has chosen you. He has chosen to pour out all of this blessing on you, every blessing. Everything you can imagine and, be, and even beyond your imagination. He's pouring this blessing out. It's not about whether God is willing to bless. It's about whether we're willing, willing to receive. And in receiving, to become this person who is filled up with God's blessing and ultimately going to overflow it and give it out, give it away, share it, promote it in every way possible. And the reason he's doing that is because he's doing something in you. He's making you into something. The person you want to be. You ever thought about the person you want to be? There's a book by John Ortberg up the peninsula of Menlo Park Press, The Me I Want to Be. Some have criticized that as, well, I don't know if I like that because it sounds like it's kind of about me and it's not about me. Well, God has something in mind for you and for me. And that something, that someone, he's planted a longing in me to be that. Now it gets distorted along the way and I forget what it is I'm supposed to be. But there is an original longing and God planted that in my heart because he put his image on me and says, there's, there's something I'm calling you to be. He's blessing us in order to make us into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus Christ. Um, there was a commercial in yesterday's game. I forget which game now. It was about Jesus. Did you see the commercial? Did anybody else see that? John 3.16, the verse... Um, all these children are saying the verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And it was a very, you know, it was the whole world. It was a, it was a multi-ethnic group of children, and they were obviously joyfully expressing what they deeply believed. And even though I thought, well, people are going to look at this and they're going to go, well, I don't think that should be on network TV. That's offensive. That's offensive? Okay. But there's something kind of irresistible about the message coming from people who obviously have taken it in and it's taken over their lives. Nobody is offensive in promoting the love of God when they themselves are showing the love of God. You're offensive when it sounds like you're preaching it and telling other people what they have to do. We don't have any right to tell anybody what they have to do. We can't change anybody anyway. All we can do is live out the reality of the revelry 
of our own experience. And as we are enjoying God, you know what? He's in the process of changing you. You become like the person you're looking at. You become like the person you study, the person you spend time with. And as you revel in God's goodness, you're spending time with Him. You're getting the very best of Him, which is what He wants to deliver to you and to me in Christ. doesn't happen separately. doesn't happen disconnected. It turns out that all the roads to blessing lead to a consideration of Jesus and what He has to offer because everything else breaks down. I can't convince anybody of that unless I'm living that, unless you're living that. Unless you are reveling in the goodness of God and so assured of that that you begin to tell other people, this could be your experience. This is how God feels about you. God loves you right where you are. There is grace and peace and rescue and forgiveness for you. Isn't that what you're looking for? And all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Praise is the first word in verse 3. And it's the last word in verse 14. And so taking all of this in leads to praise. I just have to talk about it. I just have to show it. I just have to share it. I'm not preaching except on Sunday morning. But hopefully in my preaching, I'm not preaching as in talking down to people, as in all those other stereotypes of what preaching is. You know, it's really a terrible thing to be a preacher when everybody says things like, don't preach at me. Oh, now you've started preaching. Well, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? But you see, we've kind of lost our credibility because we're not expressing it as the Apostle Paul is expressing it. We're not reveling in it. When someone revels, I'm always curious. What do you, why do you like that? Why are you so excited about that? Tell me about your experience. Wouldn't it be great if people asked us, what, why are you so calm, so peaceful, so gracious yourself? Where did that come from? Wow. What a, what a compliment when someone asks us to explain why we're taking this so seriously. Are you? Are you ready to? It's a gift for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And that just seems so inadequate. We thank you. We, we, we fall on our knees and, and, and bless you. We, we, we sing out loud. We are, sometimes we're speechless. The healing that you have brought into our lives. The promise of a new start. Of taking us right where we are. Of giving us everything we need. Every blessing. Why is it we sometimes feel left out, God? Are we just not paying attention? Are we not taking it in? We praise you because of what we're receiving. We praise you because of what we're becoming. And our life becomes a gift of praise back to you. And in full view of anybody else who cares to pay attention to what you're doing in our world, in our lives. That is your finest work. The transformation of us. And to revel is to do a very rebellious thing in our world because from the point of view of most people, there's not much to revel about. There's too much threat. There's too much bad news. There's too much uncertainty. Too much loss. Too much pain. Yes, that's all true. But it's not too much when compared to the greater 
reality of your invasion in our world. With your goodness, your love, your grace, your peace, your forgiveness, this grand rescue operation, which is for us, but not only for us. Give us the grace, strengthen us to be a living representation of this good news. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.